Hey, I'm Ed Ronco, and this is the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. Each week, we bring you stories from the IPR newsroom and things you need to know about what's going on here in northern Michigan and beyond. In a few moments, we'll hear what candidates for an open Senate seat have to say about some big environmental issues. But first, we hear about the struggle to find adequate housing in northern Michigan. The need for more housing is serious here up north. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know this. If you live up here, you definitely know this. But creating more places to live is not as easy as it sounds. A nonprofit developer is hoping to build two housing projects in Boyne City, which would bring dozens of new apartments and some businesses to the communities downtown. Many officials see that as a golden opportunity to address housing needs. But the plans still have hurdles to clear, and some people may still need convincing. IPR's Michael Livingston explains. Boyne City is the largest municipality in Charlevoix County, even bigger than the city of Charlevoix by more than 1,000 people. Its centralized location makes it an ideal place for housing initiatives that the entire region desperately needs. This year, the nonprofit Michigan Community Capital is hoping to see two proposals become a reality both of which are mixed-use apartment buildings located in the downtown area. So this is very much targeting people that want to live in Boyne City year-round, that work in Boyne City, and, you know, not for visitors. That's Marilyn Krumka, MCC's Vice President of Development. When a community decides it wants to pursue housing projects, MCC starts the conversation about what can be built and applies for funding from the state, which is why it's looking here. Over the past several years, Boyne City has worked on passing ordinances and zoning plans to attract developers. MCC's housing developments are often income set, too. More on that later. So what would these projects actually look like? Let's start with one called Lofts on Lake. It would be built on an empty lot just across the street from the shores of Lake Charlevoix. MCC acquired the land in 2019 and got plans for a 45-unit apartment building approved by the city. But Krumka says she wasn't able to get funding for the project, so a more ambitious plan was drawn up. We decided to increase um, our building by one story, which added an additional 20 apartments. And then we're also strongly targeting a child care tenant on the first floor. Now the proposal includes about 60 apartments and commercial space dedicated to a child care provider, a service Northern Michigan badly needs more of. But having new plans means it's back to square one, getting approval from the city and planning commissions. The other project is on land owned by the local library. It would turn a parking lot into a 40-unit apartment building with space on the bottom floor to expand the library. For context, the need for housing in Charlevoix County is extreme. According to data from the nonprofit Housing North, Charlevoix County needs nearly 730 more rental units to keep up with demand. This is not a, a little problem that can be addressed by a couple units here or there. This is a problem that needs to be uh, addressed with immediate housing as soon as possible. The lack of available units has displaced the area's workforce to other communities. People like Boyne District Library Director Monica Peck. I love Boyne City. I was born and raised here. I graduated from um, Boyne City High School. But she now lives in Gaylord with her family instead of where she'd rather live. We just looked and looked and looked, and we could not find anything that fit our family and was in our price range. Peck commutes to Boyne City for work and sends her kids to Boyne Public Schools. And while her family may be too big for an apartment now, 
She says that shouldn't stop other young families from having the option to live downtown. We have several young people who live at home with their parents who have, they've told me, you know, geez, we really hope this happens because we would love to be able to have the opportunity to rent one of those apartments. Peck says many of her fellow library board members are already convinced on the proposal, but that the city council and other residents might need more convincing. MCC has held four public meetings to debut the plans to residents. Boyne City Mayor Tim Nemechek has attended each. I needed to gauge and really grasp what was the community's interest, right? Because there could be a lot of misinformation and not really valid concerns being, you know, displayed throughout social media. But I want to make sure that I'm tentative and I'm making myself available to address some very valid concerns. One of those concerns, he says, is around affordability. Both projects would base their rents around the area median income, which for Boyne City is just under $60,000 per year. According to MCC, most of the units in the two buildings would be affordable to someone who makes between 60 and 100% of that $60,000. That's too high to qualify as low-income housing, but it addresses something housing advocates call the missing middle. The thought is, if moderate-income residents like Peck can find a home in their price point, that would free up more housing stock for people in other income levels. Again, Marilyn Krumka. There needs to be development at all of the different income levels. And this is just one project to address one portion of the need of the income. It's not solving all the problems of the whole region. Another concern is around the longevity of MCC's ownership. Nemechek says some residents worry about the nonprofit selling the buildings to a private owner who could jack up rents and turn them into Airbnbs. But Nemechek, who's also a realtor, says he's working on proposing deed restrictions to keep prices tied to the area median income, no matter the owner. So it could be sold to 100 different buyers, and every time a new buyer buys that land, when they go to the closing table of the title agency, they're going to have to read and sign the disclosure of, hey, there's a deed restriction saying that these have to be 60% to 100% of area median income AMI. While other concerns around parking or designs have come up, Nemechek says the time is right for Boyne to pursue these projects. As the county risks losing residents to other areas, summer rentals eat up real estate, and businesses struggle with retaining employees, he says some residents will have to expect change. Krumka says the decision is in the community's hands now. Between offering housing that doesn't exist in the community and that's severely lacking, expanding a childcare facility, that is extremely needed, and then expanding a community room, um, you know, if they decide that they would rather have parking there instead of all these benefits, that's really their decision. And I can move on to a community that would support a project um, and welcome a project. After the projects are revised based on public comment, they will be presented to the Boyne City Planning Commission for approval. IPR's Michael Livingston. We are interested in doing more stories on the housing crisis in northern Michigan, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us your housing story or just your thoughts on the issue. You can do that through our website, iprnews.org. We'll be right back. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to Life Kit from NPR. 
What's up, friends? Dan Wanshura here, host of IPR's Points North podcast. And I am excited to announce Pints North Trivia Nights are back. Season two features brand new questions about the land, water, and inhabitants of the Great Lakes, plus a few other surprises. Our first stop is at Right Brain Brewery in Traverse City on Monday, January 29th at 7. Come hang out, have fun, and maybe even learn something. For more information on Pints North, including other locations we'll be at this year, go to pointsnorthpodcast.org and click the banner. See you there. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. Presidential politics are in the news right now with the Iowa caucuses. Two weeks ago, the New Hampshire primary just this week, Michigan's presidential primary is set for February 27th. But here in Michigan, attention is actually starting to focus on the race for a U.S. Senate seat that has not been open for more than 20 years. Michigan's senior senator, Democrat Debbie Stabenow, said last year that she would not run again. And there are a lot of people who want voters to choose them this coming November. Some of those hopefuls were just outside Traverse City this week at the Northwest Michigan Chamber Alliance's annual policy conference held at the Grand Traverse Resort in Acme. They fielded questions in front of an audience, and our climate reporter, Izzy Ross, was there. So we asked her to tell us what exactly the three Republicans and one Democrat on stage had to say about some of the topics she covers. Climate change, and more specifically, the controversial plans to move a section of the Line 5 pipeline into a new tunnel beneath the Straits of Mackinac. She spoke with IPR's Tyler Thompson. Four candidates were there. Three Republicans, Michael Hoover, Peter Meyer, and Nikki Snyder, and one Democrat, Hill Harper. Let's start with what they said about Line 5, the controversial plans to move the oil and natural gas liquids pipeline into a tunnel beneath the Straits of Mackinac. The candidates were asked whether they would encourage the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to speed up the federal permitting process of the project. Their positions fell about where you'd expect. The Republicans wanted the project to move forward. Peter Meyer took issue with state officials working to shut down Line 5. The state of Michigan does not have the right to shut down Line 5, despite what the activists may pretend. They do not have that right. It is bound by an international agreement, and we need to ensure that we protect the Great Lakes from the potential for an anchor strike down the line. The U.S. and Canada signed a treaty in 1977 where they agreed that neither country would cut off the flow of oil and gas across the border, but the tribal nations in Michigan that oppose Line 5 have pointed to their nation-to-nation treaty with the federal government, which is much older. Tribes say the pipeline, the pipeline threatens their rights under the Treaty of 1836 to hunt and fish on ceded territory. Other Republicans, like Michael Hoover, were also for the feds permitting the tunnel project. This is a war, truly, on the fossil fuel industry. This natural gas is so important, especially for our lower-income, middle-income folks. They need low-cost energy. Low-cost energy is one of the foundations of our country and certainly of our world. We need more natural gas, more renewable gas. Uh, We need more oil. The one Democratic candidate, Hill Harper, disagreed. He pointed out that the Great Lakes contain a fifth of the world's fresh surface water and said that the pipeline threatens that. We're playing literally with poisoning our Great Lakes, which would be catastrophic to Michigan. It'd be catastrophic to Michigan's economy, catastrophic to Michigan's tourism. And the juice is not worth the squeeze in this case. 
From what I've heard at this Northern Michigan Policy Conference, they were also talking about Switzerland. That's right. So one of the questions was whether the candidates support global cooperation on fighting climate change, like at the World Economic Forum in Davos, which was happening at the same time as this event in Acme last week. Again, the answers fell pretty much along party lines, even though no one came out in full support of those efforts. The Democrat Harper said he was more concerned about high energy rates and reliability in state than he was about global efforts. One of the most startling moments for me came when Republican candidate Michael Hoover falsely claimed that solar panels cause global warming as well as thunderstorms and tornadoes. Now, burning fossil fuels is by far the biggest cause of the climate crisis, and scientists say solar arrays will not cause extreme weather events. Republican Nikki Snyder also said she does not support the kind of cooperation outlined by leaders in Switzerland. When I hear World Economic Forum, I hear a global bureaucracy that's about to ask for more money on top of the fact that we're dealing with mandates and subsidies that taxpayers can't afford, and then they're also paying monthly bills associated with those mandates and subsidies. I don't support that. And if we really want to see global cooperation, you've got private business that has every right to come together and make environment a priority to themselves. And we should note, it is a crowded field for this Senate seat being vacated by Debbie Stabenow. And there were only four candidates at this Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance conference. Yeah, so the Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance conducted a poll with Michigan Information and Research Service and invited the candidates that were able to poll at least 1%. Candidates who were invited but didn't attend were Democratic U.S. Representative Alyssa Slotkin and Republican candidates James Craig, Mike Rogers, and Sandy Pensler. IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross talking to our Morning Edition host, Tyler Thompson, earlier this week. Izzy's reporting comes to us through a partnership with Grist, a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate solutions and a just future. Okay, it is time to find out what else is making news in Michigan. Max, theme song, please. <laughs> In her annual State of the State address this week, Governor Gretchen Whitmer unveiled plans for free preschool for four-year-olds and two years of free tuition at community colleges. Not for four-year-olds, though, for college-age kids. She also mentioned plans to build more housing, provide tax rebates for those buying new vehicles, and create new tax credits, including one for caregivers. There will be budget meetings galore in Lansing in the weeks ahead, but Republican lawmakers are already questioning the governor's ability to pay for her proposals. Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt said the governor, quote, is maxing out the credit card. A couple big moves in courts across Michigan this week. In one courtroom, a trial began for Jennifer Crumbly. She's accused of involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say she and her husband ignored signs their son, Ethan, could become violent and instead bought him a gun that he used to kill four classmates at Oxford High School in 2021. Defense attorneys say it was Ethan Crumbly who did the shooting, and that his parents had no way of knowing that he planned a mass shooting, despite the fact that he'd made violent drawings on the day of the murders and had repeatedly asked for mental health care. In another courtroom, a different case. The Michigan Court of Appeals found there is enough evidence to put Christopher Schur on trial for the shooting death of Patrick Lioya during a traffic stop in 2022. Schur is a former Grand Rapids police officer. It is expected his defense team will appeal this decision to the Michigan Supreme Court, arguing that the law allows officers to use deadly force against a fleeing felon. 
Some members of Congress from Michigan are asking their colleagues to freeze wage hikes for foreign farm workers. The H-2A visa program lets U.S. farmers hire temporary workers from other countries. This year, their hourly rate is supposed to go up to $18.50 an hour. Groups like the Michigan Farm Bureau say those wage increases are unpredictable and too high. Farm worker advocates say it's a fair price for agricultural work, which often comes with fewer protections than other hourly jobs. All six of Michigan's Republicans in the U.S. House are asking for the wage freeze, as well as two Democrats, Dan Kildee and Alyssa Slotkin. The International 500 Snowmobile Endurance Race is moving ahead this coming week in Sault Ste. Marie. That's despite warmer weather and a decline in snow. Turns out what the race really needs for its track is ice, and they have plenty of it thanks to 2 million gallons of water that make up the one-mile track. That said, the decrease in snow might make it harder for spectators who like to come earlier than the main event and run their snowmobiles on area trails. That's it for The Lowdown this week. We had contributions from Michael Livingston, Izzy Ross, Ellie Katz, Rick Pluta, Colin Jackson, and Arjun Tucker. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland. I'm Ed Ronco. And we end this week thinking about the Detroit Lions. They play for the NFC Championship the day after we drop this episode. And if they win, they are headed to the Super Bowl. Listen, if you're not a longtime follower of Detroit football, you should know it has been a long, long time since the Lions were any good. Their last appearance in the playoffs, 1991. The last time they won a national championship was before they even called it the Super Bowl. It was 1957. Here's how that sounded in an old film from NBC. Sunday, December 29th, 1957. And the eyes of the sports world turned to Detroit, Michigan for professional football world championship. So my mom has a dim memory of this and has loved following the Lions throughout her entire life. She might be a little chagrined that I'm telling you this, but the first time I remember hearing her swear (laughs) was when Barry Sanders got tackled. So here's hoping that Sunday goes well. And hey, even if it doesn't, the Lions have still given a whole city and a good portion of our state something to really celebrate. The Lion attack is relentless. The Motor City men are on the march again. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. And hey, Lions... Go make Ann Ronco really happy. Hop along Cassidy, loops a lasso around the leather, and it's touchdown Lions. This is Cassidy's first championship game, and it's one that he and the rest of the Lions will long remember as Detroit climaxes its greatest day. The final score reads Detroit Lions 59, Cleveland Browns 14. The music of composer Joe Hisaishi is familiar to fans of anime films like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke. This week, we'll explore his music for games in the Nino Kuni series, where he brings fantasy worlds to life through his trademark melodies and rich orchestration. It's the music of Nino Kuni on Gameplay. I'm Keith Brown. Join me. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.